the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show. It's still cold. I was sure by now that things would warm up. So we're looking for warmer weather. It's coming just in time for our ladies retreat. Let me retreat a little bit. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the word to stand on for life. A program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, anything and everything on your heart, um, life questions, what we believe as Christians or why, we'll do the best that we can to provide those answers. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. One button, it'll say call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We love your calls. Let's get to the questions that were sent in. Uh, Jane wants to know, how can we know what promises in the Old Testament are promises that we can claim for us now? Jane's good question because there is so much uh, misunderstanding about the promises that God made to Israel and the ones that we can claim. And I know I've said this before, but, but every national day of prayer... Um, we get examples of this. And my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And then we, we believe that those promises are for us. Now, there are principles there that we can apply. But in order to understand what promises are for us, and, and by the way, this is Old Testament or New, we have to understand the context, the audience to whom the writer is speaking, and then we'll know. The promises made to Israel are not promises to the church of Jesus Christ. We have so many wonderful, great, and glorious promises in our New Testament. We don't have to steal promises that were never intended for us. You know, the promises, I will restore the years that the canker worm is eaten. Uh, Every Christian at one time or another claims that. that. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Uh, We buy little plaques and put them on our walls with Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, What we need to understand is the context of the promise, the audience the promise was given to, and that's how to understand. Again, there are principles that we can apply. If you humble yourself, will God do some work in your heart? Heal your heart? Of course he will. But we've got those promises in the New Testament. Jane, here's a couple of things that, that I would suggest. Go through your New Testament. And I don't know how you file things, highlight verses or uh, in a certain color or you write them down on a piece of paper. 
Um, but, but just read the promises that are made to us in the New Testament, the promises given to us by Jesus. Now, with Jesus, we have to be a little bit careful because Jesus is, his ministry was entirely Jewish and he's addressing a Jewish audience and a Jewish context. So there again, we can take the principles from it. But if you read the epistles, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind is conceived of what God has in store for those he is preparing. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and you can just go on and on and on and on. When you read those promises in context, here's what we know, that if God hears our prayers, we have what we've asked for. If we pray according to his will, our prayers are going to answer. If we ask for the Holy Spirit, how could he not say yes to us? I mean, all of those promises are wonderful promises. So those are the promises that we need to hold on to. So let go of the Old Testament promises because the New Testament promises are so much richer. And when we read the New or the Old Testament without an understanding of the context and the audience, then we really lose the value of those promises to us. Even the principles we lose. So Jane... That's the best I can do. I hope that makes sense to you. Believe me, I want people to promise uh, or to hold on to the promises by faith. I want them to enjoy the best God has for them. Uh, but we have to read the Bibles with a discerning heart and mind. We have to make sure our motives are right. And I promise you the Lord will begin hearing your prayers and doing some wonderful, wonderful things. Lance asked a question. I get this question about every two weeks, it seems. Why is marijuana different from alcohol? It seems hypocritical to say one is okay and the other is not. A couple of things, Lance. One is legal and the other is not. Now, I understand that's changing rapidly in our country. But we've got to be good citizens who obey the law. Secondly, Marijuana is a completely different context than, than alcohol. You know, alcohol, Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. The water in the biblical culture was not pure water. It wasn't healthy or clean water. Timothy obviously had some physical issues. So Paul, his mentor, said to him, drink a little bit of wine for your stomach. No, that doesn't give Timothy license to get drunk. Now, the problem with marijuana is that marijuana... The moment you inhale it, you get high. You lose control. I also want to say this, Lance, and I, I try to answer every time I get this question. I, I try to answer it, at least including this. What's lacking in your relationship with Jesus that marijuana provides? Are you just looking for a different feeling? You're looking for an escape? You're looking to sort of bury your troubles? Well, Jesus would want you to do that by trusting in him. And marijuana is different, no matter what people say, but it's just an herb or it's natural. It's not. The levels of marijuana now are so much higher, more potent than they've ever been. So just don't do it. God doesn't like it. And everybody who asks knows that, or they wouldn't ask. And it doesn't matter whether it's hypocritical to you or not. Because the only thing that matters is what God thinks. So, Lance, there's your answer. Probably not one you're going to like. Here is an anonymous question. Very simple. Is abortion always wrong? The answer is yes. Abortion's always wrong. Now, I know in our world they're going to say, but what about cases of incest and, and, and rape? Um, when you kill something that is alive, that's wrong. We can rationalize it any way we want to, but it's wrong. This isn't a matter of choice. 
Abortion is simply a means to escape the consequences for sin. Now, if you're a victim of rape or incest, for that matter, um, remember that the life that you carry in your womb isn't responsible for that. I understand victims. I understand the pain. But why would we ever, and where does the Bible ever talk about passing the pain on to others? So yes, abortion is always wrong. The world that we live in is just so crazy. Instead of not doing the right thing, we'd rather just make doing the wrong thing and the consequences of that go away. So abortion is always wrong. It always will be wrong. And we Christians ought to be advocates for life. And that's the way to do it. By the way, let me take a little bit of a jag on this one, Anonymous, and everybody else who's listening. When I say that we're advocates for life, we ought to be active in supporting adoption ministries, foster ministries. We ought to be active in helping those who are down and out. We ought to be active in advocating for victims' rights. Somebody said not too long ago in this program in a call that how can you be pro-life when it comes to babies but but not pro-life when it comes to the death penalty? Well, I'm pro-life advocating for the victims. God is the one who established the death penalty. And if you're really pro-life, you've got to support it. You've got to support the death penalty. Jesus, who is love, is the one who established it. Abortion is always wrong. Andrew says, Did Jesus go to hell after he died? Andrew, let me read First Peter three eighteen and 19, uh, and then I'll answer the question for you. Um, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now here's the relevant part. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, the spirits in prison, those are the people, um, uh, I had a similar question yesterday, uh, those are the people who are in Luke chapter 16, uh, in, in torment or in Abraham's bosom or, or what is also called paradise. And when Jesus died, he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led the captives free. He set them free. Now, he only set those free that believed in him. Those were that were in Abraham's bosom or in paradise. But he preached a message of freedom and then he you talk about a great sermon illustration. He set him free and took him to heaven with him. And those who rebelled against God, those who rejected the word of God, they remained in torment. Think about that for a moment. Can you imagine? I always uh, just think that the earth would begin to shake. I know that we're heavenly um, angelic beings that were there accompanying Jesus for this glorious moment. I'd love to see the look on the faces of the people being held in paradise, just waiting for that moment when they got to meet their Redeemer. And when Jesus appeared, I'm sure he would have had a big smile. He would explain to him what, done, what he's done and why. He would have told him about what awaits him, the glorious rewards in heaven. And then he would have turned to the others and in some loving, magnificent way said, you know, you had your chance. Judgment brings me no pleasure. Isaiah 28 says judgment is a strange work to God. Now Jesus did not, Andrew, go to hell to be tortured. He did not rise as the first born-again believer. That's heresy that comes out of the prosperity church camp. That's really, really horrible, horrible doctrine. Um, he went to preach a message of victory, not to give people a second chance. 
he preached victory because he was the victor wearing the victor's crown we do a song called the victor's crown i love it and it's a picture of this very very moment thank you very very much let's go to jimmy on line one jimmy thanks for calling you're on the air hey pastor um i've been hearing this the commercial about the third jihad is that biblical um, no. <laughs> I hear, like, the, there's a book of Purcell, and I hear, buy the book, The Third Jihad by Dr. So-and-so, I want to say his name. But. Do, you, do you know who it is? I'd, I'd be interested. Dr. Youssef? Oh, Dr. Michael Youssef. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Michael Youssef, I, again, uh, the, the title... Really doesn't, won't tell you what the book book is about, but Michael Youssef is is rock solid, and you'd have no problem whatsoever with anything in that book, uh, Jimmy. So um, the third jihad, I, I, he's he's probably just playing off uh, the the term jihad, um, and I don't know what the book is about, but my my inclination would be that he's going to talk about um, the 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 jihad. That Jesus is going to come when He brings a war of true righteousness to this world. Again, I, I don't want to speculate that that's what it is, but um, Michael Youssef is um, is rock solid. Um, uh, he is an Egyptian, um, but he's been a faithful pastor in Atlanta for a very very long time. He's on KSLR um, on on the radio, and you can hear him um, and watch him on on television as well. Uh, all over the country, his ministry is uh, is rock solid. I have no problem at all recommending it. So, uh, feel free to buy the book and tell me how much you like it. All right, thanks. Okay, I'm I'm getting getting some information, Jimmy, from my producer. He says the third jihad is a call for Christians to defend their families, protect their nation, and boldly share the good news of Jesus with their communities, especially their Muslim neighbors. So, um, again, he's just using the phrase uh, to play off the, the 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 Muslim concept of jihad, a holy war. But uh, yeah, you can you can read the book, and I'm sure it's good. Okay? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Okay, buddy. Yes, I got you. Yes, sir. Carry on. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. It's always good when somebody is reading something and I can, without reservation, recommend them. I've never heard Michael Youssef um, say anything that I thought was doctrinally out in left field. So, um yeah, enjoy. Here's a question from Beatrice. Uh, she says, a friend of mine is a professing Christian, but is also an alcoholic. Uh, could he be saved? Um, Beatrice, he can be saved. Um, whether he's really a believer or not, that, that's between him and the Lord. Now, here's what we have to deal with when we deal with questions like this. Um, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they include a passage where it says that people who live like this, and then it describes certain lifestyles of sin, uh, it says people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lives are characterized by unrepentant, continuing sin, he, he says, Paul does, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's in two places in his epistles. So what do you do with that? You know what I'm teaching through those passages? I, I, I don't dare soften it. I don't dare um, change the meaning of the passage. What Paul is saying is that the way people live identifies who they are. Now, there's a lot of professing Christians Jesus said, many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, if somebody is an alcoholic, it is possible for alcoholics to be saved. Um, but if somebody continues to practice alcoholism, then if you really care for this person, you say he's a friend, then you got to say, how do you rationalize? How do you justify continuing to live the way you're living 
when Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 both say that people who live like you're living will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think, Beatrice, if you really care for this man, then then you've got to address those questions with him. The same thing is true for any of the sins that are listed there. If somebody is continually blowing their, their temper and they're always angry, that's not the, the mark of a Christian. If somebody's living in a homosexual lifestyle and yet they claim to be Christian, their sin, their choices identify who they really are. I think the most basic thing to identify Christians that we've got to understand is that Christians have to agree with our Christ, our Jesus. And Jesus says something is bad for us and we ought not to do it. Then real Christians are going to say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to do it. Now, I'm not talking about people who occasionally fall into these categories not talking about a homosexual uh, or somebody who's attracted to the same gender, uh, but they're fighting it, and maybe in a moment of weakness they give in, but then they, they're, they're, they hate what they've done and they repent of it. I'm not talking about them. We all fall into those categories. But I'm talking about somebody whose heart isn't pierced by when they sin. The question we had a few moments ago about marijuana, um, uh, how, how can somebody brazenly do something that God says don't do? And the answer is always, well, it's what I want to do, and I don't think it should be wrong, but we don't get to make the rules. So pray for your friend, but challenge him as well, Beatrice. Challenge him as well. Ask him the question, if Galatians 5 or 1 Corinthians 6 says that the way you're living is not typical of a Christian lifestyle, how do you justify continuing to do it? And if the Holy Spirit really lives in them, it ought to cause the fear of God to make them start questioning the choices that they're making. Paul writes to the church at Rome that sin shall no longer have control in our lives. If that's the case, ask him, why does alcohol still have control in your life? It's really important, Beatrice. Pray for your friend. Let's go to Ray calling from Seguin on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, how you doing, Pastor Ron? I love you and your, and Paula very much. I hear you every day. Oh. I listen to you on the drive home. Thank just you, Ray. To just see if you could see if you could comment a little bit on divorce. I have I'm in my wife and I've been out of town. I come back and she just decided to leave the house after ten years of oh. marriage. Just because I corrected one of her daughters because she had taken off and didn't mm-hmm. and left the baby with us and decided to come home and then I corrected her and she just decided that you know what that's enough and and she I've, I've forgiven her twice she's done this before and I've forgiven her twice taking her back every time but now she went to file for a divorce and I do love her very much but I just want to know how what God says about something like this because I mean I just I love the Lord and I just don't understand yeah. Ray, I'm so sorry for you. My heart breaks. Um, we, we have um, situations like this develop all the time with blended families. Um, I had a question last week on the program. Um, somebody didn't want her husband to uh, discipline her children. And my response was, if, 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 if you can't trust your children with this man you're marrying, you have no business marrying him. You're the man that God chose. If if this is a marriage that was arranged by the Lord, I have no reason to suggest it isn't. You're the man God chose to be the godly father figure in this in this child's life. And when we find ourselves resisting that because, well, she's my daughter or he's my son and you don't have any right to correct him or to correct her. Uh, well, well, there's a marriage that got started off without the right counseling, first of all, and without the right commitment to serving God on his terms. Relative to the divorce, for her to choose her daughter over you violates the, the, the priority rules that God has given. You come first, the husband the wife. When we have blended families, Ray, what we try to do is sit down with them in pre-marriage counseling and, and we make sure they understand that everything changes now. Your children are no longer first in your life. Your husband is or your wife is. 
And if they don't understand that, then there's got to be more counseling. We've got to let the Spirit of God move. Um, obviously, if you were an abusive father, um, uh, that would be something different, but that's not the case here. Um, it, it almost looks like she's made a choice between you and her daughter, and uh, she's made the wrong choice. And the lesson that the daughter is going to learn from this is that what God really says doesn't matter. What matters more, family is stronger. I always think about Jesus when he was uh, attracted this huge crowd and his mother and his brother and his sisters came to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. And they told him, Master, your your, your mother and your brother and your sisters, and they're, they're out there and they want to, want to come and get you. And Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. So, Ray, I'll be praying for you. I hope uh, that I get one more verse for you on the other side of the break. Hey, you're listening to The Word of Santa for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love to have your live calls and questions. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Tuesday program, 340-9585. Before I go to another call, Ray, um, two things. Jesus said that that Moses permitted divorce. This is uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 7, I think. Uh, Jesus permitted Moses to write a divorce certificate. Why? Because of the hardness of men's hearts. That's still the same reason that Christians get divorced today. Hardness of heart. Think about how indicting that is. Um, In the other instances where your wife did this and you reconciled, of course, that's a good thing, the reconciliation. But um, I'm, I'm going to ask you um, to, to ask her to go to your pastor and get some counseling. Because it's not a question of, of knowing the right thing to do. You, you both know the right thing to do. You love her. I hope she loves you. Um, but but the, the conflict between a mother and her daughter, or uh, I've seen it with mothers and sons, the, the, the conflict with, with fathers and sons, that's happened many times as well. Um, these things have to be understood from a biblical perspective. How can two of you walk together unless you agree to do so? Amos 3.3 3 says, and you've got to be walking the same direction, and, and your wife appears to be torn between the two of you. Let her know that you're available, you love her, but next time it's got to be on God's terms. And I'll be praying for you, Ray. Please uh, keep us posted. My heart hurts. Let's go to Mason County now and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I appreciate you taking my call. You know, my pleasure. I'm calling the, the uh, gal with her boyfriend had a drinking problem and you went to Galatians on it. Can you kind of put that in perspective and and with the once saved, always saved idea with Hebrews 10, 26? Uh, I can, Ron, yeah. Um, you know, um, if, if somebody ever really was saved, now this is, I, I think this is what the American church misses so much. Uh, we automatically want to believe that anybody who says they're a Christian really is. And, and, and the idea that when we meet Christ, our hearts have to be changed. We can't continue to live the same kind of life that we've always lived uh, before we met Christ. And then all of a sudden, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But, but he hasn't changed you. And I, I, I hope this makes sense to you and to everybody listening because... 
the, the thing that we need to understand is that our choices to sin identify who we really are. And I'm not talking about an occasional sin. I'm not talking about having a weakness in our lives. But I'm talking about the willful continuing sin, which is what's described in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5. The man or the woman that can sin willfully and, and, and feel no conviction without feeling compelled to change, well, that's a person whose heart hasn't been transformed. It doesn't matter what their brain believes. What matters, and Ron, you know this, you've called here before, and your heart is always on your sleeve, and it's a good place for it to be. But you see, when we meet Jesus, we change. We can't say, okay, I met Jesus so I can keep drinking or I can hold on to this sin or that sin. When you really meet Jesus, you want to let go of the things of this world. Again, nobody does it perfectly, and, and, and many of us struggle uh, with areas in our lives. But the man or the woman who can sin continually and think nothing of it, that's a heart that's hard as a rock. So it doesn't mean that somebody who's really saved loses their salvation. That's not the context there at all. What it means is that I can identify a Christian, a real believer, by the choices that he or she makes. Now, there's always exceptions that prove the rule. There's people that give in. There's people that are weak. There's people who who aren't close enough to Jesus. And And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, uh, one of the passages talking about, and, and, and it was a carnal church, but he calls them brothers, saints. But the man or the woman who really meets Jesus cannot be the same as they were before they met Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he, or I would add she, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I think we've been sold a bill of bad goods in the Western church, Ron. I, I think what we've got is a whole bunch of people that answered an altar call. They had an emotional moment, but they never really laid their sin down before Jesus. And you see, we don't really meet him until we do that. So the man who sins, the woman who sins, and, and really belongs to Christ, then that sin torments them. They hate that sin. And the Holy Spirit's always knocking on the door of their heart. It is the unbelieving man or woman who, with their lips, lay claim to Christ, but hold on to sin and feel no conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's just not possible to consider oneself a Christian if that's what they do. So if uh, I drink too much and I hate myself when I do it and I keep saying, God, please forgive me. God, give me the strength in this area of weakness. Um, that's because I'm a believer. But if I am a man who drinks too much, you say, oh, you know, it's okay. Uh, we're free in Christ. Well, that's not a man who really has met Jesus. I hope that makes sense to you, Ron. Does it make sense? Yeah, the, the balance, the difficulty I have in talking to people yeah. with addiction problems is assurance of their salvation. They get to beat themselves up so bad they don't know where they're at, but I can't judge where their heart is. That's the difficult part of it. You know? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think when they're beating themselves up, I think one of the things we have to do, and again, this is, this is the, the mark of a Christian. We can take him to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Are you sorry you did it? Yes, are you not going to do it anymore? I'm going to try my best. Then, okay, there's no condemnation. And here's a real key. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And and often, Ron, what I find in counseling sessions with people who are as you described, I'll just say, you know what the truth is, when you chose to sin, you left Jesus behind. You weren't abiding in him, and he's not abiding in you. Unless he's abiding in you, you have no power over sin. But a lot of Christians don't understand that sin has been disabled in their lives. They're sure going to be tempted, and there's still going to be things that they, they, they don't want to do, but they end up doing. But the whole idea here is that if God has really given us victory over sin then we ought to be able to make headway. And um, when, when people are condemning themselves, that's a good sign. Um, but too much condemnation, of course, and the enemy's going to pound them. 
um, Ron, what we do in, in a counseling situation is we always lead them to the, the, the feet of Christ. We lay our sins down. What did he say to the woman caught in the act of adultery? Go and sin no more. Yes, sir. He, he chased the man at the pool of, of, of Bethesda, or Bethsaida, rather, and, and the next day caught him and said, now stop sinning or something worse will happen. And, and just too often in the Christian church, we want people to feel good instead of we want them to be good. And I think the balance we have to, to, to find is found in our scriptures. Uh, if you're a, Jesus, if you love me, you'll obey me. So let's talk about when you sinned, when you made this mistake. Now, addiction, physical addiction, Ron, is something that's really important that we understand. We, we've categorized it as a disease. It's not. The physical addicting properties of alcohol or of drugs, they leave your body in, in a matter of hours or in some cases a matter of just a couple of days. So physically, we're no longer in need of the drug. The problem is that mentally, the enemy and, and the, the, the temptation of that drug has our brain being held captive. And at that point, we've got to decide, do we really believe the promises of God? And when I'm dealing with addicted people, the first thing I ask, tell me about your time in the Bible. Well, you know, I don't spend much time in the Bible. Well, no wonder you're being defeated. Tell me about your time in prayer. Well, I don't spend much time in prayer. Well, no wonder you're defeated. And, and, and we've, we've got this, this rehabilitative culture that is so accepting of the addiction stories that we hear that we've stopped insisting that people live holy and righteous lives. And anybody, anybody, Ron, an addict and pastor or not, anybody who sets their hearts and minds on walking a righteous path with Jesus, it's going to be delivered. Jesus said, lead us not into, we should pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's not me, or, or in your case, you. It's not you judging their hearts or their salvation. What you're saying is, if you're really saved, there's an answer, a solution, and you want to find it. But if you're not saved, and you don't want the solution, I always tell people things aren't going to get better, they're going to get worse. What are you going to do? And and we're leading them to Jesus. Instead of sort of patting them on the back and saying, it's going to be okay, we need to let them know that they have been, as real believers, they've been given victory over their temptation. First Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And then the next words are so critical. It says, and God is faithful. It doesn't say, Pastor Ron's faithful, or Ron from Mason County is faithful. God is faithful. It says, he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he'll always provide a way out so we can stand up under the temptation. And I, I ask people, look, do you believe what God says in the Bible? And so just will say, do you believe that promise? And when they start saying, well, no, I'm just so weak, I can't do it, the answer is faith. It's unbelief. So I think we have to be direct. We have to rightly represent Christ. And we have to, that's, that I believe with all of my heart, Ron, is the balance in issues like that. Anything well else? Said. Uh, well okay. said. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ron. God bless you. I love his voice. <laughs> I, he's called a few times. I just love his voice. Andrea wants to know, how do we entertain angels without knowing it? Andrea, um, it's Hebrews 13. Some have entertained angels unawares. I love the King James. Um, the answer is, we're ministering to people, angels, good angels. I don't think fallen angels can anymore. But good angels throughout Scripture often take on the appearance of humans. Um, I, I, it happened throughout the Old Testament. It happened uh, in the New Testament. Um, two men, the Gospel writers say, were sitting in the tomb, the, the empty tomb of Jesus. They, they appeared to them as men so they could relate, but they're really angels. We know that. Um, and, and, and I believe with all of my heart that there are times that angels are sent to us 
uh, sometimes to test our hearts, sometimes to deliver us from calamity, sometimes just to help us kind of figure a way through a trial that we're in. And very seldom uh, are we going to say, you know, I was visited by angels today. We know it. I think that's what happened. Let me give you an example, Andrea. And Paula talked about this on the program this last Thursday um, uh, on the Date Day Show. Um, when our son Ronnie was born, his birthday was March 1st. When he was born, he uh, almost died uh, several times. Um, I got pushed out of the delivery room. And there was a nurse there who came to Paula and said, you know, I just had a funny feeling about him. And I looked over at him and he was turning black um, uh, for lack of oxygen. And she was there to rescue him. Uh, She introduced herself. I think Paula said her name was Mary. Um, The next day when the doctors came and told her that that Ronnie was fine, that um, he's through the crisis and everything ought to be okay now. Uh, remember, Paula was all alone. She was a 19-year-old mother. And she said, well, I want to thank that nurse. I'd like to introduce myself to the nurse and, and just thank her for, for what she did. And they said, which nurse? Well, it's the nurse that was sitting by Ronnie's, um, what do you call the little cribs that they put him in, the little plastic cribs. Um, she said uh, uh, her, her name was Mary. And they said, I'm sorry, we don't have a Mary. And nobody named Mary was here last night. The only nurses that were on duty, and she gave them the names. No, that's not them. And so this nurse Mary appeared out of nowhere. I believe, Paula believes, Andrea, that that was an angel. Um, you never know. I believe um, that I have in the past um, ministered to somebody who was really in need, who was really hurting. Um as a test Uh, and then they were just gone and I believe I've entertained angels not because I'm spiritual or anything but but God tests us throughout ways so under those are the ways that we can entertain angels without knowing it I've had uh, several encounters with angels most of the time it's to save us um, uh, from from tragedy and um Beyond that, we don't really know. One of the things I look forward to in heaven, Andrea, is finding out all the things that I've been rescued from, the pain I've been spared when I didn't know that God sent angels to intervene. So I hope that makes sense to you. Jason is a really interesting question. He says, Pastor Ron, what would you say to someone who is literally afraid of God, terrified, um, Jason, I would say they don't know him. Uh, almost certainly that person is not a born-again believer. Um, and, and if my supposition is right that the person you're talking about is not a born-again believer, um, I, I would probably say, now remember, I'm getting old and I don't have a lot of time to waste, so I'm, I'm pretty direct when I talk with people. I would say, well, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born again, then it's good that you're afraid of him. You should be terrified of him. Because to fall into the hands of a holy God on Judgment Day without Jesus having wiped away your sins should scare all of us to death. Now, if somebody says, well, I am a Christian, then I would say, well, let's open your Bible. Let's talk about who this Jesus really is. But, a, but a, for a person to be a professing believer and to be literally afraid of him, even if they're really saved, they don't know him. How can you be f- afraid of a lamb? How can you be afraid of a God who loves you so much that he gave everything for you, that he took the punishment that your sins and mine deserved? How, how do you be afraid of that person? And the answer is usually going to be because I'm sinning and I know God is holy. And then I tell him you should be afraid. That kind of fear is really, really good when somebody's not walking with Jesus. 
But honestly, Jason, to know him is to love him. To know him better is to love him more. So tell your friend or your relative, whoever you're talking about, tell him, invest in knowing Jesus. Be honest enough intellectually to open your Bible and get to know him. I like to tell people all the time, well, let me introduce you to my Jesus. Because my Jesus isn't angry. My Jesus isn't impatient with you. My Jesus loves you and proved it. And right now he wants to wrap his arms around you and convince you of that. And usually when people resist at that point, Jason, it's because there's sin they're holding on to uh, certainly tighter than they're trying to hold on to Jesus. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we've still got time for a call or two. Uh, here's a question from Michael. Uh, what can I do to get a family member out of the false prosperity movement? Uh, Michael, all you can do is tell them the truth, show them the scriptures, and then there's nothing else you can do. Pray for them, but there's nothing you can do. Certainly you don't want to argue with them. You don't want to come off as being self-righteous. You just tell them that what you know about Jesus isn't true. And you're listening to people who are going to hurt your walk with Jesus. He doesn't want you to be rich. He doesn't want you to be healthy. Now, if you're healthy and if you're wealthy, that's a good thing. But it's not because Jesus owes it to you if you have enough faith. Uh, I think you've probably heard, Michael, based on asking the question, that, that when I first got saved... I'd made such a mess out of my life that that uh, I, I wanted, uh, I, I needed money. There was nothing else that was going to going to help me out of this fix I was in. And um, um, I had a, the devil always has a guy around, and there was a guy who said, "Well, come to my church." And it was a church uh, in in Los Angeles. The pastor was Frederick Casey Price, one of the worst false teachers there is. Um. And I started going. God wanted me to be rich. I want to be rich, so I'm going to learn. And and as a believer, I mean, I was really saved. As a believer, even as he was preaching it, no matter how badly I wanted to believe it, even as he was preaching it, I knew it wasn't true. I knew it didn't set well. I knew I I was in sales. I was a car dealer and... Uh, I understand what selling is. They were selling. And so tell them and then pray for them. Don't get involved in an argument with them. Let's go to David on line one from San Antonio. David, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, David. I wish I wish I could have talked to you last Friday, which was your Thursday show, because your Thursday show got messed up. Because uh, yeah. you and your <laughs> you and your wife were talking about everything I wanted to ask you, and it's like, oh well, but the opportunity didn't present itself, and I do have it now, so I know we're short on time. Uh, so here's the thing: uh, for about 20 years, my wife and I have both served in ministry, either in, uh, separately in two separate ministries, and then finally the last ministry we served in together uh, while well, we were together. Uh, now, uh, after the 20 years of serving. I kind of got, uh, my wife got burned out, and I saw that, and I told her, you know, you need to step down the last year we were together. And then after that, um, I decided that I needed to take uh, some time off to refresh myself to get back in the ministry. And I've been asking the Lord for direction on whether to help someone or actually just start a ministry, and, and I've, I have the direction now. Listen, it's very clear what, what I'm to do. Okay. Uh, problem problem is now is that uh, I've talked to my. It's not a problem. I just want to know your opinion on this. Uh, talked to my wife about it, and and she's not in in accord with me at all. Uh, she's not against the ministry that um, I'm supposed to be involved in, mm-hmm. uh, but she's not in that. So I'm thinking that she can't be part of that because she's not. Her heart's not in that. That's one thing. The second thing is. Um, I didn't know where this ministry was going to take place, and I do now, in that a pastor, just out of the clear blue, offered me his church. He said, I only use my church for an hour and a half, 
um, I don't know if you need the church, but you can use it. And I thought, wow, <laughs> okay, <laughs> somebody just gave me a church. I, I don't know that um, that I should step into that and that that's a denominational church. And I, I don't, this ministry cannot have any denominational ties, if you will. It's, it's a ministry to the Lord, and, and it, will, it shouldn't be tied into this denomination. So I'm wondering whether I should um, take that or or what's your opinion on that? Thanks. Okay, up. David. Okay, thank you, David. I've got I've got less than two minutes, so let me do this. What you've asked is a very important question. Uh, if if your wife's heart isn't in it, neither is your heart because you're one. That, that's a hard thing to understand, but you're one. Um, what I have found, and this is the way the Lord uses Paula in my life. Um, I'm I, I sometimes have a tendency to move too quickly. And there are times when God has used Paula to slow me down. So here's what I would say to you with regard to this particular situation. Um, your wife loves Jesus. You love Jesus. Tell her, you know, this is the vision that God has given me. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray about it. Pray about it every day. And I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit still until God has moved on your heart. All I want you to do is promise me that you're going to be in the Word, that you're going to pray about this, because one day we're going to have to take that first step together. Now, David, that's so important, because if I hadn't done that with Paula, we wouldn't have survived here in San Antonio six months, let alone for nearly 24 years. Um, Your wife needs to be convinced by the Lord, and in many cases like this, God's given you this vision, it's really from Him, But now he's just using your wife as a timing mechanism to slow you down. So don't rush. Don't do anything on your own. Wait for your wife. You can't go into ministry, especially if it's taking a church that way. David, maybe you can call back tomorrow. We'll do something else. Hey, I got to go. We're out of time. Bye-bye. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.